0: What is the oldest ingredient in the classic summer campfire treat, s'mores? Hmm.
1: And why were the front rooms of houses once called parlors? Mm -hmm. Answers to those and other questions coming up in this episode of The Off-Ramp with Bob. And Marsha. Smith. Welcome to the Off-Ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, and take a side road to sanity. Well, I can't imagine anything more sane than s'mores, Marcia, just (laughs) relaxing around a campfire and eating those s'mores.
0: Okay, you got what? You got two graham crackers, gooey chocolate, and melted marshmallows, right? That's
1: right. So what's Uh, the oldest
0: ingredient? Yeah, of those three foods, which has been around the longest?
1: Are you talking about my pantry now? or <laughs> Okay, which has been around the longest? There's Graham the-
0: crackers, chocolate, gooey chocolate, and melted marshmallows.
1: I think the chocolate's the longest. That's the ancient yeah. thing. It's been around for hundreds of years. Yeah, yeah.
0: I would have guessed that too. But guess what? What? <laughs> You're wrong. It's the marshmallow. According to the history of the s'more, and there is
1: one. Wow, <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs>
0: It is a sweet that gets its name from a plant called, wait for it, marshmallow. Oh,
1: <laughs> well, there actually is a plant yeah, called that. Because yeah, I, I thought marshmallows were you know, some kind of confectionery. Yeah, and,
0: no, and it's spelled, uh, if you put the two words together, marsh and mallow, it spells exactly the word marshmallow. Okay. That plant is indigenous to Eurasia and Northern Africa. And for thousands of years, the root sap was boiled, strained, and sweetened to cure sore throats or simply be eaten as a treat. Really? Yeah, they figured that out. Over the centuries, creation of the treat was very time-consuming and could only be afforded by the very rich. And by the mid-19th century, when your life began...
1: Oh, shut up.
0: (laughs) The process became mechanized and it became... Penny candy cheap.
1: No kidding. Yeah. Okay. So the marshmallow was an actual plant.
0: Yeah. It is. It still is. Okay. Yeah.
1: I had no idea. I thought it was a total sugar confection. It had no nutrition. Yeah.
0: I don't even think they use the plant anymore. They use corn syrup and all this other stuff. I'm sure somebody still makes it the good old fashioned way.
1: (laughs) Speaking (laughs) of old fashioned, Marsha, the term parlor, that's an old fashioned term for the front room of a house. Why were the front rooms of houses once called parlors? And it comes from a word. Parlor, parlor,
0: parliament cigarettes. No, No,
1: it comes from your home country's language. Parleur, French Yes It
0: was We Parleur meant uh, The room in front of the house (laughs) No
1: Parleur Or parlor Means to speak In French Or conversation
0: Oh so that's where The conversation was Yeah So
1: in the 18th And 19th centuries Having a parlor room That was proof That you had High ranking status You had a room Dedicated to just Having friends greeted Or people gathering To talk They would rarely Venture deeper Into your house So that (laughs) was God forbid God forbid They They don't want
0: to Go in the back And see the dirty dishes.
1: Keep it all in the parlor there. (laughs) A strictly formal room where the family's most expensive furniture was and where the most important family events occurred, including wakes. Oh, yeah. Where families gathered to mourn their dead.
0: They weren't very big in
1: old houses I've seen, were they? No, they weren't like chambers, which were in huge mansions. That was the first room in those, but this was like a middle-class room. Some people today claim parlor became known as the death room during the, the flu epidemics of the early 20th century. However, there's little evidence of that. But you could imagine small children calling a parlor the death room (laughs) and not wanting to play there after Grandma Gertie's funeral. I'm
0: not taking part cheesy in that room, ma. Okay. (laughs) Did you ever wonder why American Indians in days of yore were called redskins? Like, they never looked red to me, and I couldn't figure
1: it out. See, I always thought that that was probably it. There's a darker pallor to the uh, skin, and they were not black. But they were red. They were something like that. But is that where it comes from? No. Where does it come from? The
0: original natives of Newfoundland, Canada, was an Indian tribe called the Beothucks. As part of a sacred ritual, they would paint their entire bodies with red okra. Oh. That's a natural pigment found in the soil. Right. Neighboring Indian tribes called them the red people, and Europeans came and called them the red Indians or redskins.
1: So that's how it began. Yeah.
0: Although it became a kind of Indian slur on the mainland, it still persists to this day. But it all comes from a Canadian tribe who painted their entire bodies. This was all year round. They covered themselves in uh, okra.
1: Okay. Hey, back to the uh, term parlor. How did the parlor become the living room? I'll give you a hint. It was a magazine.
0: Was it like Good Housekeeping who said you don't need that front room? Why don't you make a bigger one room?
1: You're right. I'll give you bing, ding, 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 four points, even though you got the wrong magazine. That's okay.
0: It's some some women's magazine.
1: Edward Bach, the editor of the Ladies' Home Journal. Ah. He's credited with coining the term living room as the name for the room of a house commonly referred to as a parlor. He popularized it in 1910 and he said it was foolish to create an expensive furnished room rarely used. He promoted the new name to encourage families to use the room more frequently in their daily lives and then he ran articles with uh, design ideas for it. Oh, that's cool. So it became the middle class name for the room where everybody and everything happened.
0: And you can never remember which room is the family room and which room is the living room. That's
1: because the family room was a term that came later as a more relaxed setting than the living room. So, So living rooms are more formal yeah. overall than right. the family rooms. Family rooms, that's where you put the beanbag chair. <laughs> yeah,
0: and, picture, and pictures of the family. That's right. Okay, Bob, why is a vulgar or maybe kind of a crass woman called a fishwife?
1: A fishwife. She's this a fishwife. have anything to do with fishmongers, people who sold fish? Maybe. Okay, tell me about it.
0: Going back to medieval times, titles helped to specify job and gender. Two that have survived are housewife and midwife. Those go back to medieval times, believe uh-huh. it or not. Yeah. But at one time, an ale wife owned a pub, ale being brewski. Right. An oyster wife sold oysters, and a fish wife sold fish. The fish wives were perhaps a little more vulgar in speech because she picked up a new vocabulary from a lot of men working on the
1: waterfront. Yes, yeah, sailors. Yeah. They spoke like or, sailors. Or, you
0: know, longshoremen. Yeah. Yeah, so they spoke a little harsher than... Uh, the more refined women who sold oysters. <laughs> who sold oysters. Oysters and beer. I <laughs> imagine
1: none of those women were refined well, in why today's not? terms. Oysters were eaten by regular people. Yeah. Beer was consumed by yeah. workers and taverns. Right, right. Those aren't refined kind of professions, historically.
0: Historically, No. Okay. But they, you know, like a smith, they, it gave you a designation as what you were and what you did. Right.
1: But it didn't mean you're refined. Smiths weren't refined either. They were carpenters. We and, were. Okay. <laughs> you married into the family. You That's, have a little more allegiance to the name than I do. <laughs> All right. What All you right. got? What candy got its famous shape because of a defect in manufacturing equipment? The Lifesaver. That's right. The Lifesaver. Clarence Crane, that was the man. He was a chocolate manufacturer. He had uh, sales fall every summer because chocolate melted in the heat. So he started a summertime specialty of hard mints. And he employed a local pill manufacturer to press those mints into shape. But instead of plain round discs, the machinery stamped out little rings of candy with a hole in the middle. Hmm, they look like Lifesavers. So that's why he called him that.
0: Oh, I didn't think of that. Yes, of course they do. Yeah. All right. All right, Bob. According to Forbes magazine. Yes. Who gets the most audits? What group of people gets audited more than others?
1: People who have money. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong.
0: Low income families really yeah yeah in 2021 2.6 millionaires out of a thousand were audited while 13 out of a thousand low-income families were audited oh my goodness that's like more than six times more audits i
1: suppose it's easier because they don't have attorneys and all the people interfering with the audit
0: but you think there'd be so much More corruption in the millionaires. There's more to go
1: after when you go after a millionaire than a lower income person. That's for sure. That's that's a crime. That's a shame.
0: I I think so too.
1: Wow. Okay, Marsha. Let's talk alcohol. You spoke about it earlier. All right. What alcoholic beverage began as a medicine sold by pharmacists in Holland? Say again. What alcoholic beverage began as a medicine sold by pharmacists? Was
0: it something? Well, in
1: Holland. In
0: Holland. Was it some kind of whiskey? Or bourbon or... None of
1: those. None of those. Uh, Vodka, gin. Gin, yes. That was first manufactured by a Dutch chemist, Professor Silvius. Oh, really? Several centuries ago. It was originally known as Genever in honor of the juniper berries used to season the liquid. Genever, J-E-N-E-V-E-R, was distributed to pharmacies as medicine. But it became so popular, druggists began setting up their own backroom stills. Oh, that's funny. (laughs) Backrooms to meet customer demand. (laughs) In the 17th century, William of Orange introduced Jennifer to the British, who shortened the name to gin. Uh (laughs) One reason for gin's popularity is that it's ready to drink the instant it comes down the condenser tube. It doesn't have to be aged.
0: Okay, Bob, why do we call tearful, overly sentimental people, maudlin?
1: Why do we call tearful, overly sentimental yeah, people usually maudlin. it's overly
0: sentimental, you know.
1: know. So maudlin. Maudlin, yeah. That must relate to maybe a person, maybe a famous does, po- poet or author do-
0: or something like no, that? No, you'll be surprised at this. Okay. The word is a common British alteration of Magdalene, the surname of Mary, the woman who repented and was forgiven in stories from the Bible. Oh, my in medieval paintings she is often depicted with eyes swollen from weeping and the use of her name in terms of being maudlin meaning tearful sentimentality was first recorded in get this 1631 they called it maudlin
1: well, i'll be darned i didn't know that no i didn't either mary magdalene yeah. maudlin and yeah. that's somebody who's crying and very yeah, sad Very
0: weepy, because in painting she always looks she's kind of weepy and now uh, she's maudlin
1: no oh, i'll be darned Okay, did you see the news that uh, State Farm, the largest yeah. insurer in California, is now pulling out of the state? Of California. They insure more homeowners in California than any other company, yeah. but they've announced they'd stop selling coverage to homeowners, and not just in the wildfire zones, but everywhere in the state. Or
0: flooding, and yeah, you know, you you got to go out of business if you're insuring California.
1: They said it's just rapidly growing catastrophe exposure. It is. You know, insurance is to manage risk, but when the risk is too great, this is like an empirical measurement of something that it's not political. This is an insurance company saying uh-huh. there is too much danger in trying to insure people in this state.
0: Well, every time there's a mudslide over there and all those big ass houses go down the mountainside there, I always think, oh, Who insures those people? Yeah. Why would you?
1: Well, State Farm, not anymore. Not anymore. (laughs) And then that's been the case in Florida. Few, if any, national insurance companies insuring homeowners in Florida. Apparently, back in 1992, after Hurricane Andrew, the storm losses caused most national carriers to pull out of that state. So Florida established a... System to help small insurance companies remaining. It's called Citizens Property Insurance Corporation. Well, guess what? Now they're the largest insurer. It's like we don't want people leaving the state here, so let's set up an insurance so company. So
0: basically taxpayers fund that, right? Well,
1: I think they helped it. I don't know how it works. Okay. There's also a thing like that in Louisiana because of all the flooding and the uh, hurricane I think damage. There have to be. So now Arizona has made it official. Now really? Phoenix doesn't have enough water. One day after State Farm announced it's pulling out of California, Arizona officials are now limiting housing construction in Phoenix because the water table has dwindled to dangerous levels. The question for you, (laughs) Marsha, how much water does Phoenix use every single day?
0: Well, I don't know, Bob. Is it millions of gallons? Yes.
1: No? It's billions. 2.2 billion gallons of water a day used by Phoenix. 2.2 2.2 billion gallons of water a day. That's more than twice what New York City uses in a single day with twice the population. Just
0: use- How can that be?
1: Well, because people are using water for swimming pools and desert lawns and desert golf courses and desert farms. Wow,
0: and they use more than New York City. Wow, that's mind-blowing. New
1: York City is only uses 999 million gallons a day for 9.8 million people. Phoenix uses 2.2 billion gallons a day for 4.5 million people. Well, so that's going to make a lot of big changes in Arizona. It's going to be more expensive to own a home, and, and they won't be building as many houses there anymore.
0: Where do they get their water from?
1: They get more than half of their water from the groundwater in Maricopa County. That's where Phoenix is. Uh-huh. And groundwater, if it is exhausted, can take thousands of years to replenish. The water the county got from the Colorado River, which yeah. is shrinking, yeah. that's already been cut significantly as part of an agreement among seven states. So some tough, yeah. tough times ahead. Then climate is really changing. I mean, the it's obvious now. Yeah. It's not uh, political.
0: Well, we Great Lakes states have a definite advantage. Don't so
1: I? far, there's right. going to be a war over water.
0: Oh, I think so eventually. Yeah,
1: yeah. sad.
0: Okay, break time, Bob. I'm
1: I'm so sad I'm maudlin'. Okay, we'll be back with more in just a moment. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob. And
0: Marsha. Smith.
1: We're back with The Off-Ramp. Uh, we do this every week for the Cedarburg Public Library in Cedarburg, Wisconsin, which has its own internet radio station. And after that, we put the show on um, the podcast platforms, and it goes out all over the world, so... We have uh, wonderful, wonderful people asking questions of us. We do. Yes. We do.
0: I'm one of those wonderful people. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Why do geese fly in a V formation?
1: Why do geese fly in a V formation? I just said that. Why (laughs) do geese. Wait a minute. Let me see if I got this right. Why do geese fly? (laughs) Why don't they fly in a U formation? Uh, that's, that's a good question. That's a, that's a good question. I'm sure it's uh, designed for them to always see the leader. Everybody can see the leader because the leader's in front and everybody else is out yeah. to the side. But I don't know. As They have some idea that they talk to the geese and they got the they, information. They have it. They do have it. Okay, the they conducted un- interviews. Yes, they did. In the air.
0: Okay, Bob. When geese fly in a V formation or a single line, they are drafting off the one in front. In the same way, a race car driver uses each other to pick up speed. I didn't know that. Oh, so you? they're
1: getting the the waves. The, the
0: downwind, the lead bird, which by the way is always female. What begins? A Wait tur- a minute. What? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> begins a turbulence wave that helps lift the birds behind her. And so it goes to the back of the line where you don't need much energy at all to fly. They just are kind of happy days back there. I
1: had no idea there was a woman, yeah. a woman bird. <laughs> to fight exhaustion. Wait a minute, on, a
0: woman causing turbulence? Unheard of. <laughs> <laughs> You're walking on thin ice, baby. Okay. Okay. <laughs> to fight exhaustion, the lead bird rotates out her position with another female. Wow. She can only do it so long. And then she rotates out hmm
1: so then she can coast on the uh, turbulence created by another female yeah,
0: maybe she goes right to the back and rests because there ain't a lot to so do so you're back telling me there. that
1: all these birds are <laughs> flying because of females causing problems <laughs> turbulence sure, i'm Bob, sorry sure turbulence. that's the answer okay we have some uh, wonderful people asking us questions wonderful people this comes from harvey watson of san diego california okay how can we thank the ford motor company for margarine Made from soybeans.
0: Really? Ford, huh? Okay. Something to do with their assembly line. They used it as some kind of grease? Lubrication? No. I'm pushing it, aren't (laughs) I? Okay.
1: All right. What What is it? Well, you're right. It was Henry Ford because he took an interest in soybeans, and the Ford Motor Company developed margarine made from soybeans they actually introduced it at the chicago world's fair 1933 something like that i don't know ford chemical engineer robert boyer who was 34 was developing plastics for henry ford made from soybeans horn buttons gear shift handles and control knobs and he started working on ways to substitute soybean forms for conventional foods so you can really credit the Ford Motor Company with popularizing soybeans in many ways. Oh, I'll be darned. Thank you to Harvey Watson, old buddy you, of mine Harvey. from uh, San Diego, for that, uh, that question.
0: When someone loses their job, Bob, why do we say they got the sack?
1: Probably because they were put into a sack and taken away. <laughs>
0: In the good old days, Next right? person comes along. Hey, Bob, get in the sack here. That's right. <laughs> You're fired.
1: <Couple> a <laughs> couple of big bruisers come up with a sack and take you out of the factory. Wouldn't
0: it be funny? Well, not really funny. No, it wouldn't be it would funny. Be.
1: <laughs> okay, that was my uh, thinking answer, and yeah. I haven't thought of anything that's anything legitimate. Anything <laughs> better than that, huh?
0: Okay, well, before the industrial era, workers would carry their tools from job to job in a sack. When a job was done or the worker was discharged, the boss would simply hand the worker his tool sack.
1: Oh, well, they give him a sack. He was
0: literally given the
1: sack. See you later, buddy. Yeah. And it was his own sack.
0: It yeah, was his own was sack his own of tools. it was his own sack. But the boss would put his tools in the sack and say, goodbye.
1: Wow. Okay. So that's interesting. All right. I'm going to ask you something I think you'll know the answer for. What oh, famous but- dessert was named after a singer that a French chef admired?
0: Um, the French
1: chef was Auguste Escoffier. Uh-huh. He was an ardent admirer of, of? a famous Australian Aus- soprano. From opera days? Yes, her title was Dame, but what was her name? <laughs> 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 a famous dessert was named after her.
0: Okay. Oh, was okay. it Florentine? No. Yeah, now Dame I'll tell Florentine. you the
1: name of the fruit, peach.
0: Peach cobbler? Peach. <laughs>
1: No, no. Yeah.
0: Peach Flambé. Yes, it was
1: Dame Nellie Cobbler. Yes. No. It was Dame Nellie Melba. Melba. And oh. the Peach Melba is named for her. She <laughs> dined at London Savoy Hotel at the turn of the century and a scuffier concocted a special dessert for her. I love it. Dame Cobbler. <laughs> Do you know what Peach Melba is? I'm sure I've had it. It's but. peach in vanilla syrup in a dish of vanilla ice cream. ...covered with crushed raspberries. Doesn't that sound delicious? uh, It does. And so when she asked for the name of the dessert, the chef answered he'd be honored if it could bear her name, and it became known as Peach Melba. All right. Soon became the rage of London and spread throughout the world. Okay. Better than a disease. I thought you would... Yes. (laughs) I thought you would know the answer to that.
0: I didn't. No, you
1: didn't. (laughs) Okay, I got another fruit question. Oh. Yeah, fruity questions (laughs) today. Sure, go ahead. What was the first trademark used to identify a fresh fruit? Um, now, I'll give you another example. Chiquita is a brand of yeah. bananas. This is a famous trademark used to identify fresh fruit, and not just one type of fruit. A trademark.
0: It, it's okay. The
1: first used to identify a fresh fruit. Okay, I, tell me. Come on, Marsh. <laughs> Sunkissed. Really? Yeah, that was first burnt into the skin of a California orange by 27-year-old Don Francisco. He was an executive with the California Fruit Growers Exchange in 1919, sun-kissed. That's where it came from. Huh,
0: that's all news to me. Two
1: fruit questions <laughs> you failed at. I can't believe it.
0: Yeah, okay. You know how I often say you vex me, Bob. That's right. What is a vexologist?
1: That's a person who's vexing. That's right. Often vexing. Often vexing. Vexologist. Gets vexed. Well, that could be a person who takes care of vexes, Mm -hmm. uh, who categorizes them, uh, who uh, studies them, or a person who solves them or gets rid of them. No. Okay. You were
0: so wrong. It's a person who studies flags. (laughs) What? (laughs) Yes. Who studies flags? Yeah. One who designs flags is a vexillographer, and one who is a hobbyist or general admirer of flags is a vexophile.
1: A vexophile. (laughs) It's
0: it's derived from a Latin word, vexilla, which meant little sails and flags flying on ships.
1: Wow. Okay. Vexilla. Vexilla. All right. I seem to have food questions today. That's good. I like food. Until about 50 years ago, what could you do with Magnets and Kellogg's Frosted Rice?
0: Really? You mean it, it? was you could attract it with a magnet? Yes. What the hell? Uh, in
1: 1977, the Wall Street Journal reported there was a problem with the iron content of the cereal. You could use magnets and move your rice around in your cereal oh, bowl. Oh, Lord.
0: And what could go wrong with that?
1: Uh, yeah, really. Oh, uh, my the God. The iron content was reduced. From 25% of the recommended daily allowance to 10% after consumers discovered they could move the frosted rice (laughs) particles around with magnets. It's good
0: to have iron, but I don't think
1: in that quantity.
0: Okay, Bob, what
1: did Cleopatra
0: have her mattress stuffed with every night?
1: Cleopatra had her mattress stuffed with something every night? Every night. Every night. Is it a food item?
0: uh no is it
1: flowers yeah something to give her a sweet smell yeah okay what was it rose petals oh well that sounds sexy
0: that is and she had him stuffed every night and just as an aside she took her first lover at age 12.
1: what (laughs) (laughs) oh god
0: which blows my theory on bad media cultural influences oh
1: my god she had her
0: own uh, needs at
1: the age of 12. (laughs) yeah holy cow (laughs) Okay. Bring uh, on
0: the rose petals. There we Cleo. go.
1: Jeez. All right, Marsha, I have a question about canned food. In the recent episode, you said the canoper wasn't invented oh, yeah, until 50 yeah, years yeah, after right, the canned right. food. Okay. When was aluminum first used commercially for food and beverages? Now, there's always been cans. Things were sold in cans. Not always. Well, in the last century or two, or century and a half, when were aluminum cans first used commercially for food and beverage?
0: I will say. 1958.
1: Close to it, 1960. Really? Yeah. Prior to that time, all cans were steel or tin. The the aluminum cans had a couple of advantages. They were seamless, they had an edge over steel cans in terms of safety, but of course they presented an environmental danger over the years because they didn't break down in the soil as readily as uh, rusting steel. And in that first year of aluminum cans in 1960, 95% of all soft drinks and 50% of the beer was sold in returnable bottles that were each used 40 to 50 times before being thrown away. Oh, geez. We put the bottles now in the recycling. Yeah. Nobody reuses glass bottles, if there are any. Even the bottles for soda are plastic now. Mm. Plastic and aluminum for most part.
0: Yeah, okay. All right, before I get to my quotes, Bob.
1: Okay. What
0: great lake is so treacherous for ships that it's often compared to the Bermuda Triangle?
1: It's uh, actually Lake Michigan.
0: Very good.
1: It's, uh, let's see, between, I know I've seen it on the map, and it's not too far from us. That's correct, Which explains a few things I've seen around here.
0: (laughs) And we did go out on that boat that crossed uh, the lake to Yeah, uh, we probably crossed that triangle. Oh, my my God. God. I'm glad I didn't read this before we went. (laughs) Okay, it's the Lake Michigan Triangle, and it covers an area between Benton Harbor and Lunnington in Michigan and Manitowoc, Wisconsin. Yeah. Tales abound of ships that mysteriously disappear disappeared never to reach their destinations, uh. and many still avoid the area because of superstition.
1: All right, Marcia, one more food question, <laughs> and this goes along with your maudlin and sad. Yeah, yeah. Those lovesick people who gorge themselves and get fat on chocolate may just be doing what comes naturally. Why do some scientists believe chocolate might alleviate the pain of heartbreak?
0: Okay, here's my hypothesis. Okay, because it's sugar, and that stimulates your system, makes your heartbeat faster.
1: According to a theory by doctors Donald Klein and Michael Leibowitz of the New York State Psychiatric Institute, the brain of a person in love is awash with a particular <laughs> chemical that gives them a rosy high. Uh-huh. That substance is phenylethylamine, and it just so happens chocolate is loaded with this stuff. That might just explain why those who loved and lost sometimes go on chocolate binges. Oh. Yeah. It might be just a way to bring back the highs of love in a self-medicating way. So it's no wonder many of these people, when asked uh, why they're eating so much chocolate, answer, uh-huh. I want to treat myself good. Uh-huh. Self-love, yeah. in other words. Self-love. Chocolate. And that theory might also explain why two famous lovers in history, Casanova and Madame de Berry, were chocolate freaks.
0: Were they really? How would you know that?
1: Well, I read this in a Reader's Digest article, so. (laughs) Well,
0: good old Reader's Digest.
1: (laughs) I get my information from reliable sources. Yes,
0: you do. If everybody is thinking alike, Bob, then somebody isn't thinking. That's a quote from George Patton. I like that. That is a great quote, and it's true, isn't it? Yeah, it it is.
1: If everybody's thinking alike, somebody isn't thinking.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like the mob mentality thing. Okay, and here's a quote from almost 80-year-old Mick Jagger. Oh. Quote, I'd rather be dead than singing Satisfaction when I'm 45.
1: Oh, that's right. He said that years and years ago. I wonder if that ever came back to haunt him. Apparently, oh, he just laughed. I'm sure
0: laughed. it did. As soon as he hit 46, they I'm were I'm sure he laughed it
1: off when the next million dollars came in the yeah, door. Yeah,
0: very rich indeed. <laughs>
1: exactly. All right, that's it for today. We uh, offer you the opportunity, like Harvey Watson, to submit any question you might want to have to Marcia or me by going to our website, Show. scrolling down to contact us and leaving your information. I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. Join us again next time when we return with the next half hour of fun-filled facts and tantalizing trivia here on The, the Off-Ramp. Ramp. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.